Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. A very good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. This is, of course, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, a patroness of the unborn, patroness of the Americas, and we're going to be joined today by Edmund Miller and Alicia Wong from Guadalupe Workers, uh, taking a look at some of the uh, interventions uh, they've had over the last uh, month. That's coming up today. Also, uh, you might remember, it's only two years ago, uh, there were claims that mass graves had been discovered at Canadian indigenous schools, and there was just this wave of moral outrage. Flags were flown in half-staff. Pope Francis traveled to Alberta, Canada to apologize. Rioters began tearing down statues, even burning churches. But the investigations have not turned up any human remains. Tom Flanagan will be joining us to go over why that's the case and what do we actually know about these uh, terrible stories. Uh, Tom is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Calgary and the author of Grave Error, How the Media Misled Us. Also coming up, uh, we have our friend Wes Smith, who's going to take a look at some new gene editing therapy um, using CRISPR technology to modify a patient's blood cells, can reverse the problems uh, caused by sickle cell disease. Uh, That looks real good. But he's also going to take a look at a reproductive startup group, claims it can sequence an embryo's genome and tell you if there's anything there that could cause the baby trouble. And, of course, the implication is if you can find something wrong, you can eliminate the baby. All right. That's coming up. And then John Burst joins us. Um, this is an outstanding new book called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. Uh, John will be joining us to go over this topic, which, again, has caused a great deal of distress uh, in many parishes and homes. Uh, he's senior counsel and vice president of appellate advocacy for Alliance Defending Freedom. He's argued uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. And today he's going to look at the, the whole gender ideology issue in the church. But first, let's get the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, December 12th. It's the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. President Biden is calling on Congress to pass his request for Ukraine funding before the holiday recess. He said failing to do so would give Russian President Vladimir Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could ever give him. The president made his remarks in the Oval Office alongside Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who earlier today was on Capitol Hill making a direct plea to lawmakers for more support. 
The Israel-Hamas war is now in its 67th day. This comes as the United Nations General Assembly is set to vote today on an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The two U.S. officials said there's limited hope in the Biden administration that the U.S. can create another pause in the fighting between the Palestinian militant group and Israeli forces. All charges against former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder in the Flint water case are being tossed out. The Michigan Supreme Court denied a last-ditch attempt from Attorney General Dana Nessel's office to keep the charges in place. The charges against Snyder and eight others fell apart when the state's high court ruled Nessel's use of a one-judge grand jury to bring the charges was improper. Harvard's governing board is giving school president Claudette Gay a vote of confidence. It formally voted to keep her on the job despite sharp criticism over her testimony before a congressional panel investigating anti-Semitism on campus. She and other Ivy League school leaders were grilled about whether calls for genocide of Jews violate school rules. And broadcasting legend Al Michaels is being pulled from NBC's NFL playoff coverage. NBC Sports Vice President Greg Hughes confirmed the news to the New York Post. Michaels was set to call one of NBC's playoff games next month as an alternative. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Came across really uh, heartwarming and instructive little story in the Detroit Catholic. You know, story about a second grader. Uh, name is Hunter Nanoshi. Uh, goes to St. William's School. And that's in Wald Lake, Michigan. And uh, most second graders, uh, when they get a chance to meet their favorite, in this case, Detroit Lions player, they want an autograph. Not Hunter. Hunter wanted to give his favorite Detroit Lions player a rosary instead, and a rosary that was Honolulu blue, no less. As I said, Hunter is a second grader at St. William's School in Walled Lake, and he got his wish on November 19th when the Lions were uh, playing the Chicago Bears at Ford Field. And he had a special moment on the sideline with the Lions' outstanding kicker, Riley Patterson. This is during the pregame warm-ups. It all started... When uh, second grade Hunter was watching a game on TV with his dad, Ivan, and noticed that Patterson, who's an outspoken Christian, wore a cross around his neck. Uh, Hunter told the Detroit Catholic, I noticed in the start of the football season, when Riley would go out there to kick, he was wearing a cross around his neck. And he had the chance to talk with uh, Riley when... um, he came to this bear game, bear game, the Lions versus the Bears, and he had field passes. So he was able to get down close enough. And he has a rosary, he said, that's the same color as the Lions colors. And when my dad told me that he got tickets to the game, I brought it with me to give to Riley. So Hunter's down there on the field, you know, for pre-game, pre-game warm-ups. Uh, Patterson's practicing field goals. And uh, they hailed a field uh, personnel worker to come over and talk. And uh, he said, would you say, tell Patterson that I have a gift for him? Uh, Well, the personnel worker says, well, what is it, of course? And uh, Hunter showed him. It was a rosary. And the guy smiled and said, let me go give give it to him. 
So um, the field personnel took the rosary, gave it to Patterson, and the hunter surprised. Patterson ran over to Hunter after he finished his warm-up. And it's a wonderful moment. It's caught on video, and it's posted at uh, St. William's School's social media channel. But Patterson asked Hunter if he was the one who gave the rosary. And he said, whoever that field worker was, thank you, because he gave it to Riley, and he came over and asked, did you give me this? And Hunter says, of course, I, I, I did. And uh, Riley said, well, thank you. Uh, again, this is one of those funny little stories of a, a second grader, just no intimidation at all, uh, but wanting to share uh, his faith in Christ with, uh, again, this outstanding uh, kicker from the Lions. And this actually brings to mind a, another little story here. Uh, St. Edith Stein, you may not know, was a teacher. She was a teacher, 1916, until the Nazis um, got to power in 1933. So she was of Jewish descent. So she was banned from teaching. And, and then she went into the, joined the Carmelites. But she had lots of insights into education found in her uh, philosophic, philosophically trained mind and also from her many years of experience as a teacher. And these uh, insights into the education of children show up in her collection uh, called Essays on Woman. And so in the sixth volume, in the sixth essay of the volume, she gives guidelines on how to educate and raise children in the faith. And this is what... I thought it was interesting, especially in light of this little story uh, about Hunter giving uh, Riley Patterson the rosary. Uh, Edith said, Edith Stein said, St. Edith Stein, once a child reaches the age of reason, he or she is ready to consciously embrace the faith. And the goal of the religious instructor, parent, teacher, should be, quote, to establish a direct, firm relationship to the world of faith, one which endures after your instruction ceases, and which resists dangerous effects counteracting from another direction. So she listed five um, points. First of all, now these are these are simple, but th that makes them easy to remember and easy to apply. Number one, children should read Bible stories. All right. Storytelling is one of the best ways to um, inculcate uh, values. Stories tell are dramatic. They have conflict. They have resolution of conflict. And biblical stories are incredibly colorful. Uh, Saint Edith Stein said they make a deep impression on the youthful imagination during the early school years. And uh, you know, you've got the stories, of course, Jesus' parables and the Gospels. The entire Gospel itself is a story. Uh, you've got, of course, the remarkable moments in the Old Testament of creation, fall. You have uh, the calling of Abraham, the Exodus, the giving of the commandments. And many uh, teachers of uh, children have pointed out that kids will obey the commandments much easier if they understand the story behind them. And that's also the way it works in the Scriptures. The Hebrews knew the story of the Exodus. 
They had experienced it. And the law only came after the story of the Exodus. So it's good to keep that in mind. Let them read Bible stories. Secondly, children should experience beautiful religious customs. So St. Edith explains the importance of uh, a child surrounding a child during their upbringing with uh, all the riches um, of the church's festivities, you know, the liturgical calendar, uh, Advent, as now, Nativity, the May altar, May songs uh, with Mary, and coupled with this is the obvious communal church attendance. And she was very big on connecting with the liturgical year, uh, organizing your prayer uh, as a family along the liturgical year. Uh, Because that, again, reaches deeper than just reason. It reaches to the level of imagination, feeling, and it also, year after year, it becomes, has the force of habit. Here's a quote from her. Only one liturgical prayer is the expression of liturgical life. Will it really contribute fruitfully and formatively in the process of religious education? The third uh, principle she lays out, children should be prepared for and receive sacraments at the earliest possible time. Now remember, she's talking about uh, at least the age of reason, so not, not before the age of reason. Now, I know that there are people, uh, you know, debate to, at the right time for receiving the sacraments, but Edith Stein uh, said the earliest possible time. Um, and she thought, the reason she said this is because she believed that the sacraments do convey supernatural grace, and that um, kids have lots of uh, <laughs> anti-supernatural forces that are coming their way. And in her opinion, the sooner children begin receiving the sacraments regularly, and especially the Eucharist daily if possible, the stronger their foundation in the faith will be. Um, however, and this is, has to be equally important, children have to be prepared for meaningful reception of the sacraments. So it's not just like, you know, magic. Uh, They've got to understand what's going on here. And to do this, they have to receive instruction in the truths of the supernatural reality, uh, especially uh, the supernatural reality inherent in the Eucharist and the real presence. Her fourth point, children should receive a foundation of clear and thorough dogmatic instruction in which they are guided to comprehend it, not merely with the intellect, but also with the heart. Now, remember the first rule. Children should read the Bible stories and let their imagination uh, get soaked, uh, simmered in these biblical stories. But that does does not negate the importance of dogmatic instruction. Okay? You you have to get the balance right. Um, The idea is to make children receptive to understand the Catholic faith. And so their imaginations uh, have been engaged with Bible stories. They live and breathe the liturgical year. They have a basic understanding of and a regular participation in the sacraments. In other words, they have a lively and active faith. And then they are ready to engage with their intellect what they feel in their hearts, and they can grow in their love of, of the church. 
Uh, St. Edith wants the child to be led to, quote, penetrate into the mystery of faith with his or her whole person, with an intellectual recognition and a voluntary acceptance by the will. Coming to know the mysteries of Christianity must always lead to transformation in the ways of life, end quote. Number five, and this is probably for parents the most important. Young minds and hearts will only be successfully formed in the faith when the people who introduce the children to the mysteries are themselves permeated and their lives formed by those very mysteries. And again, this is so important. It's, you can't guide children to a lifelong faith if you're not living the faith out yourself. Um, they have to know that your faith is not just a conventional attendance at religious services. They have to know that your decision-making, um, how you evaluate uh, family activities, how you spend your leisure time, um, all these things have to play into a connection to the Lordship of Christ. You know, all the practices we give to children have to be part of your life, all right? The Bible stories we share should come from our own experiences of reading them. Uh, we should observe the customs of the liturgical year alongside the children. Let ourselves, we can be drawn deeper into the mysteries each year, and we can draw on the sacraments so that we have the grace to persevere in the faith. And in teaching our children, we will also grow in our knowledge and the study of the mysteries of Christianity. And that will, again, equip us to be better teachers and disciple-makers for our children. Uh, this was pointed out by Susanna Spencer, by the way, I want to mention, in uh, the December 10th edition of the National Catholic Register. The wonderful piece. We'll have it available for you in the Cresta Guest Archive. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Do you celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life? It's an approach to family spirituality that can help every Catholic family encounter Christ more meaningfully at home and experience their faith as the source of the warmth in their homes. The liturgy of domestic church life has three parts. The right of Christian relationship helps families love each other with Christ's sacrificial love. The right of family rituals helps families develop Christian attitudes toward work, play, relationships, and faith. And the right of reaching out helps families learn to serve each other and the world just like Christ. When you live out the liturgy of domestic church life, you bring the grace of the Eucharist home and let Christ transform everything about the way you live and love each other. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter Him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? 
You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus, see you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Starting in 2021, Canada came under the grip of a great moral panic over the so-called residential school gravesite scandal. There had been some ground-penetrating radar that had allegedly uncovered the remains of more than a thousand people at the sites of three former residential schools that housed and educated indigenous children. And uh, there was just a wave of moral outrage uh, that emerged at that time. Flags were flown at half-staff. Pope Francis traveled to Alberta to apologize. Rioters began tearing down statues. There were churches that were burned. So where does this stand today? Well, joining us to bring us up to date, we've got Dr. Tom Flanagan. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Calgary and the author of Grave Error, How the Media Misled Us and the Truth About Residential Schools. Tom, thanks for joining me again. Well, pleasure to be there. Uh, Let me just uh, correct you on one point. I'm not the author of the new book. I'm the the co-editor. It's a team effort. There's about a dozen people who have contributed to it. Very so good. Uh, yes, thank better you. Better than any one person could do. Very good. Well, where, where do we stand now? Where, how is this story being told in Canada these days? Well, initially there was practically no uh, skepticism at all. Uh, politicians, media, uh, social leaders, um, church leaders, 
bishops, everybody seemed to accept the story that graves had been discovered at uh, at Kamloops and then subsequently at other residential schools. <clears throat> but um, with time, there started to be some pushback. Uh, you know, the first issue is that although there are claims of graves based on ground-penetrating radar, um, there is no physical evidence. Uh, no bodies have been recovered, not, not a single one. Uh, no, you know, no fragments of bodies. No, uh, have no they gone to these sites? Trials, nothing. Have, have they actually gone to the sites using the radar and tried to find the graves? In- uh, there's been limited digging. Um, there's been a lot of ground-penetrating radar and claims based on that, but there's been much less digging. But recently there was a, um, a pretty reasonable attempt at excavation at a mission church uh, in Manitoba, and um, they thought they had found 14 grave sites in the basement of the church based on the use of the ground penetrating radar. But when they excavated, they found nothing. Hmm. So So what's the radar picking up, then? Pardon me? What is the radar picking up? Well, it depends where you are. It's, uh, It's picking up disturbances in the soil, they call them anomalies. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be based on prior construction. Like when you think about the basement of a church, if the, the floor of the basement is ground, just the ground there was bound to have been uh, disturbance when the, when the foundations were put in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at uh, Kamloops, it appears that what they're picking up is mainly weeping tiles from an old septic system. Hmm. A big septic tank was installed for the school in the 1920s, and septic is, tanks have to... Uh, this is the one in have, British Columbia? Yeah, okay. that's right. Okay. Uh, they have to have tiles to drain the fluids out of the tank. And uh, so they they put in sleeping tiles below the surface of the ground, and the water is drained out. That way they, they get absorbed back into the soil. So those tiles are still there. And, of course, the, from the point of view of a ground-penetrating radar de- a detection device, they look like um, they might conceivably be uh, be part of a burial. Um, but there's been no digging at Kamloops, so I can't say for sure. But that's what it uh, seems to be the most likely explanation. And, and uh, so, so, anyway, it depends yeah. on the site, but, but usually it's a result of prior digging for one reason or another, which has created disturbances in the soil. Yeah. And then if you go over those with the ground-penetrating radar, you could, you might say, hey, here's a possible grave site. Somebody's been digging here. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure, somebody's been digging, but was it for a grave? You don't know that until you actually excavate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is this changing the shape of the story there in Canada? Well, slowly and at the edges, but, you know, I have to say it's very depressing, the... Uh, um, the the narrative about uh, uh, unmarked graves and mass murders and and so on got established in a tidal wave, right? And opinion leaders at the time simply rolled over politicians, uh, the prime minister above all, but other politicians, the uh, members of all parties in the House of Commons, voted to recognize what happened in residential schools as a genocide. Yeah, um, I, I remember. 
<laughs> Absolute nonsense. Church leaders, every church, practically, well, all, all the main churches, um, sadly, Catholic Church uh, included, yep. Anglicans, other uh, Protestant churches that had missionary mission schools, they all, uh, again, apologized repeatedly uh, for what had been done. Pope Francis uh, made a special trip and sort of apologized. It was a little bit confusing what he said, but, you know, he went to great effort to make a trip and mm-hmm. uh, meet with um, Native leaders. Sure. So once the, once all that's been done, it's very hard to uh, reverse you know what I mean? It's yeah. hard to convince people that that they've been had, that that, not, that there's nothing there. At least there's no evidence that there was anything there. Um, what what disturbs me about this, Tom, is th- the absence of evidence. A, a story like this is is a, is a great story. Uh, I would think somebody. It would be interested in doing the excavations and falsifying uh, the report or verifying the report. And I don't understand, given how much energy was expended on it, you know, and, and how this gripped the public's imagination. I don't understand why there hasn't been a, a drivenness to actually get concrete evidence. Well, you would think so, but. Uh, the sites are almost all on Indian reserves, so you can't dig without permission of the of, of a local band council. Okay. Um, so that's that's one thing. Secondly, I think by now, a lot of Indian leaders have realized that uh, digging will probably falsify the claims that they have made. And they have a lot to lose. The government has announced appropriation of three hundred twenty million dollars. Whoa. to uh, look for more graves, even though actually no graves have been, have been found. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I think the fact that the sites are all on Indian reserves is crucial. But uh, the, and, and there's, no, there's no claims of current crimes, so the police have no reason to, you know, force their way in. Uh, it's all historical analysis. Right. So, uh, there's no day. Let me add for your listeners. I assume most of your listeners are probably American. Yeah. Um, this issue is not just Canadian. Uh, similar claims are being made in the United States as well. Uh, they haven't had the traction that they've had in right. Canada, but the, the, at several residential schools, the claims uh, have been made. And uh, it, it may, you know, maybe other countries as well as time goes on. Um, so it's not just a Canadian story. It's 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 troubling though. Um, it's it's troubling because it's almost it's almost as though um, people are enjoy the passion. Uh, enjoy the moral outrage. Enjoy having somebody that they can blame for whatever injustices they imagine may have taken place in the past. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. They're getting yeah, I, something out of it. They're getting some psychological compensation from it. And then there's political compensation. And as you mentioned, there's now financial compensation as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. To me, the most troubling thing is the way in which church leaders have rolled over. They have not defended their own missionary yeah, efforts. Yeah, I know. You know <laughs> at, at the time these schools existed, the churches, uh, they were about the only people who cared about the Indians. Yes. Uh, nobody else cared. They just wanted to get rid of them. The church, uh, churches cared, and the schools were an attempt to uh, make it possible for the Indians to uh, uh, take a place in modern society. They were imperfect, I'm sure. Uh, everything human is imperfect. Right. But, uh, you know, this was an essential part of the missionary activity, as understood by all Christian churches. Right. Right. And uh, now the way in which leaders have abandoned it, uh, it's incomprehensible to me. And you know, and a lot of these missionaries are still alive. They're old, uh, but they, uh, you know, they were active in younger years, and now they they feel abandoned by their churches. Yeah, uh, you know, it's very sad. Yeah, I it's uh, look, the church sends people out to do the uh, carry out the missionary mandate of the church. And then, uh, upon uh, accusations, unverified accusations, they leave these uh, missionaries to twist in the wind. I mean, there's just—it's just—it's just wrong. Uh, yeah, there should be some fundamental loyalty here. If wrongs were committed, if the abuses occurred, then of course you want to uh, do what you can to remedy those. Uh, but in the absence of compelling evidence. Uh, I would br- I would bring the missionaries themselves up and ask them what they witnessed. I mean, but actually, the opposite is taking place. Missionaries again, and this is not just any a single church, but in all the churches, the missionaries uh, who are still alive have received instructions not to uh, not to speak in public, <sighs> not to defend not to defend their work. Wow, wow. Um, so, what do you think is the next? Step. I mean, is this just going to roll on, or is there is there going to be something, some moment, some epiphany uh, that can happen? I mean, well, I'm, I'm I'm sort of a conservative by nature, so I'm never really optimistic, but I'm always <laughs> hopeful. <laughs> um, I you know I hope our book will will do some good, but I don't have any. Illusions that one book can stop a freight yeah. train. Yeah. Um, but I think gradually um, doubts will be raised about the narrative. I think it has lost a lot of momentum. Okay. Uh, it hasn't been reversed, but it has, yeah. has lost a lot of momentum. Well, let me thank you so, again, Tom. I, I, we're just out of time right now. But, uh, okay, well, the thanks book, for having me on. Yeah, the, we'll have the book Grave Error, How the Medium Misled Us and the Truth About Residential Schools. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness.
The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. He was a pope, a saint, and a doctor of the church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. Pope St. Gregory I the Great is one of only four popes honored as the Great. Among his many achievements was sending missionaries across northern Europe, especially St. Augustine of Canterbury, who brought Christ to the people of England. In a pun, Pope Gregory called the English people angels. He died in 604. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. What are some major offenses against the Eighth Commandment? The Catholic Catechism states that false witness, that is, lying in court, and perjury, which is lying under oath, are especially grave sins because they are stated publicly. Such false statements contribute to the condemnation of the innocent and the exoneration of the guilty or the increased sentence of the accused. If we assume the moral fault of another without sufficient evidence, we commit the sin of rash judgment. We offend by the sin of detraction when we reveal the faults of another without an objectively valid reason to someone who did not know them. Calumny is the sin of lying about another person, thereby harming their reputation and contributing to occasions of false judgments regarding them. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the unborn, and of course the namesake for our friends at Guadalupe Workers. 
Uh, Alicia Wong and Edmund, Willer, uh, Edward, Edmund Miller are the co-founders of Guadalupe Workers, and I urge you to get to their website, guadalupeworkers.org. Um, but I love talking to them because they always have uh, stories of hope because they, they deal with people. I mean, we just went through this election, uh, is, yeah, the election, a referendum in Ohio in which uh, pro-life forces did not prevail. And um, in the midst of all that, though, lives were being saved. Talk to me about that, Edmund, Alicia. <laughs> well, we had a very young couple at our office exactly that night, right, that we, we, this was happening. Yeah. Yeah. She was desperate. She was six months pregnant and did not want to acknowledge the pregnancy. Yeah. She wa she ha they have a, um, I think it was 18-month-old uh, baby mm -hmm. with them or, you know, in a, in a stroller. She was wearing just a light sweater. It was cold outside and her face was dull and wow. her eyes were lost and she said, we had been sleeping in our car mm. for months, and then our car broke, and then we had nowhere to go with a baby. And now she's pregnant, so with two children, wow. they are in a car. Through Where did you see her? How did you, how she, did you meet her? Well, her, actually, the, the father of her baby is the brother of a woman that we turned away from abortion years ago <laughs> <laughs> wow okay. yes so when she was talking about abortion his mother remembered us and said hey wait a minute this i know this place they help your sister so much and you know i'm gonna take you there so the yeah. mother actually drove them there wow. and um mr miller talked to the couple and it was it was one of those times that she would say if i had all of this help I wouldn't kill the baby, right. but for us that wasn't a, that wasn't acceptable, you know. Like, yeah, of course. We're not, we're not negotiating. If I then <laughs> right, right, right. Because <laughs> the next week she might not have, and then you know what happens to the baby. So, Mr. Miller took a lot of the time to really, really go in depth with her, and open her heart, and then she started crying, and of course, she understood that life wasn't, you know about that yeah. and that he asked her specifically what what is it that you what are what are you what is it that is in your heart what you know remember the question you asked her well yeah she kept, she kept talking about herself as a provider and mm -hmm. she couldn't provide for her family and she wouldn't be able to provide for this baby and and i just got a little frustrated and i got up from the desk and i went, went over and sat beside her and i said is this what you are are you a provider is that the essence of your humanity and at first she didn't understand me um but the the boyfriend got all excited and he said, said I, I know what you're talking about i know what you're talking about and so i i got her as eventually to see that she was looking at the whole business of human relationship just as economics that's right yeah yeah and in order to maintain this relationship, I have to provide this, 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 this. It's almost a commodity. Right. Yeah. Is that what motherhood is? Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. So, so what was the outcome? Well, thank God she um, she decided to keep her baby. Yeah. The next day, somebody had offered to um, donate a car to us. So the next day, we took her all the way to this person. She received a car. She was able to, you know, start, you know, trying to find a job and try to do other things. And we put them in a hotel for uh, two weeks. Or two weeks, two yeah. Weeks. yeah. So that they could, you know, get a little, you know, yeah. break from sure. being outside in the cold and the mm-hmm. park, wherever they were sleeping. And then finally, what did you? What did she? She called a week ago. Um, the the final resolution was that um, with her time in the in the hotel, she was able to do a lot of phone calling, and she uh, found an aunt up north. I never know what up north means, but <laughs> an aunt up north, and the aunt was. Um, incensed by everything that was going on and uh, distraught about this girl's situation, so she said, "Come live with me." So, okay. what about the father? Well, um, not the happy part of the story. Okay. He um, he he just kind of drew out of the out of the situation. So she and her kids, born and unborn, went up north to, yeah. to live with the aunt. Uh, was she crushed at his abandonment, or no. did she anticipate? Okay, no, not, <laughs> not, right. not crushed. Yeah, okay. I think in the world that we deal with, you know, the I think it's just kind of a mentally given that the men are are temporary, and that's you know that's one of the essential tragedies that we deal with. Wow, wow! Every time you open your door, you get five to ten people looking for help. Is that right? <laughs> yes. That's incredible. Where do they come from? Um, it's it's more and more. It's word of mouth. Um, again, some of them are are coming over from the abortion clinic. Um, last Saturday, I was I was there at the clinic five minutes and left with a, a couple. Um, wow. I, I chase ahead to the office and put on a wig and um <laughs> no i'm not that strange fellow that you saw <laughs> you do shave <laughs> so, uh, but yeah otherwise um these people will help these people will help and we're in we're in second generation now and sometimes are we in third generation yet but well uh, by the way what what happened to your van? <laughs> I see a picture here. I'm going. I How know. did that happen? So we had agreed because it was right after you know the All Soul All Souls Day, right? That we were going to go pray at this uh, cemetery, particularly the cemetery. And my mother was with me, so you know my mom and I drove to the cemetery, and my cat was with me as well. <laughs> one of my oh. one of my four cats. So okay. I parked. I just had parked the car. I left my phones and everything in the car. I uh, walk around, you know, I, he was waiting already for us there. So before I could even get to my mother or, you know, like get her out, he pointed at one of the um, stones, headstones that was right there where mm-hmm. I, in the, you know, very close to where I had parked. So, you know, so that we could, you know, say sure. a prayer for the person who was a friend that was buried there. Yeah. And then we heard this horrible noise and fumes, I mean, like smoke 
dense smoke coming out from where my mother was. Wow. <laughs> so we, I just you know, ran to the, you know, we, we were not that far, but we just got to the car. My mother had already opened the door. My mother is 94 years old. <laughs> 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 so she got out of the, we, we pulled her out of the car and Mr. Miller tried to move the car. It wouldn't even move. And we saw it melt. Unbelievable. I have never seen anything like that before. My mother, I just, we, I pulled her up the hill behind a big monument so that she would be safe. It was cold. and Did, you, my, it, it, did the thing flame? It, it burst into it, flames it and it was gone that within, crazy. like, that's easily not, within five minutes. The I mean, whole that, thing was gone. That, that's not an old van, right? It was, 19, it was a 2017. Yeah. And I had fixed everything and it was perfect. Good heavens. There was nothing wrong with my van. It was it was a it was a nightmare. <laughs> do you do uh, do you know what what happened? Nobody was no, able to no, tell. No, no autopsy on the van. <laughs> so, but it was wow. So, amazing. do you need a van? I guess next the question well, is. I I was able to you know get a van. Okay. For for you know yeah. next. insurance. <laughs> insurance worked this time. Oh, good. Insurance good, paid good. for it. Yeah. It was an accident, so obviously. Yeah, but it was very, very traumatizing. I think for many, many people listening are amazed uh, at what you do. These stories are, I think, compelling. And one of the mysteries is how people find their way to you. And I know you're out in front of uh, abortion clinic, but there are people who show up there who you didn't see at the clinic, right? They right. get, oh yeah, we like, get referred from places. Yeah, most of them. Um, and sometimes we we just have no idea. I mean, we we start each day with a you know set of appointments. This person needs this and this and this, and then and then they they start showing up. I mean, people that we did not make appointments for, people that we do not know. Um, and what's today? So last Tuesday, I think it was. They had the, they had filled the waiting room, and then we had to um, kind of funnel some others into the the central room of the house, the what was originally the dining room. So they were they were filling two rooms, and we had a a fellow um, friend of mine, Dave, who had come by just to just to see and and. <laughs> And we had to recruit him. Can can you go into the basement and get a box of threes? Can you get these clothes? And he was two hours up and down the stairs. Oh, wow. So where do they come from? I, I don't know exactly. They We've helped a lot of people in 20 years. We've helped, who, who knows how many people we've helped. Um, hundreds, thousands, yeah. and when you're there that long and when you're consistent and you stick with it, yep. then um, things things happen. And, and that's what people have to believe. Yeah. That they don't have, going back to the original you know, starting point of the, the segment here, you don't have to wait for the political process. Yeah. God has given you the grace. Yeah. Our, our hope is not in the political order here. And that's what is, I think, is, a, is really an important lesson. You're doing what uh, Christians are called to do, uh, spiritual corporal works of mercy, and going about doing it. And uh, over the years, uh, you, you've continued to serve people. And, um, you know, so one one could, and I, again, I'm not against a, a 
politics. I'm not against doing what we can uh, to get good legislation. But it's it's uh, it's it's an illusion to think that somehow if we just get the right people in office and get the right laws, that somehow that will solve the abortion problem. It, it won't. Uh, even mm-hmm. if you have the best of laws, you're going to have women who will seek abortion for a variety of reasons. But mm-hmm. So your work will never end. Right. I, I went to a benefit dinner, uh, I don't know, a month ago, and the wise man was the speaker, and he said that we are a... a a people in exile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I think I know him. As a yeah. people in exile, we we cannot use the, the tools of the world. We have other tools given to us. And yeah. to be a people in exile, that is that is our privilege. Yeah. And also, I don't know how, all of a sudden, when you said that you cannot expect that the people in the government or the in great position are the ones who have to solve the problem or do it reminds me of Juan Diego especially yeah. today because yeah. when our lady of guadalupe asked Juan Diego the first time to go see the bishop he was like okay you know i'm, I'm obedient i'm going to go you know and he went and tried and after hours or hours realized that i'm not going to get this done so he goes back to her and said no you have to Send someone else. Why me? <laughs> right. Right? I mean, surely she could appear to the bishop himself, right, and ask him to do what she wanted her to him, you know, what she wanted done. But but Juan Diego was like, no, 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 you're, you, are, you chose the wrong person. But it was so, so incredibly important to know that she said, it is you. And he was basically practically in front of everybody else, nobody. Yeah. yeah. And that's how... It got done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is. It's a common uh, illusion, I think, for many Christians in America, who have seen Christian groups rise in political influence over the last thirty years. Um, it, it, there's the illusion that if you just have the opinion of being pro-life, you are pro-life. But what you're doing is you're showing us you have to act, not just hold the opinion. And that's the way the world will know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. People contact you. Music's coming up now, so I've got to move on. But GuadalupeWorkers.org, right? Correct. Okay. Learn more. This is exciting, exciting outreach. Father Benedict Groeschel. In the church, we speak of seven gifts. Wisdom understanding, counsel, knowledge, loyalty, courage, and reverence or fear of the Lord. When I speak about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and these gifts come, they give you the ability to go beyond your strength. If you're struggling to be a good person, a good member of your religion, you know it's a struggle and you don't always make it. I've been at it many, many decades, and I still struggle and trip and fall and have holes in my socks. Struggling to be a good person, something that we need help at. And this help comes to us by these gifts of the Holy Spirit. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. 
He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship. Or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come. Not with the regularity that I want you to come. Not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Yeah, I don't know where else you're going to find Edith Stein's uh, advice on uh, uh, discipling your children, and then this investigative piece up in Canada, where uh, there was this mass hysteria almost, uh, and there've been no about the again Canadian Indigenous schools, and we find out now they've never discovered any bodies. And then, of course, wonderful story uh, from Edmund Miller and Alicia Wong from Guadalupe Workers doing the work, corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And they'll say that nothing special here. We're just uh, active Christians doing what Christians are supposed to do. And I, again, urge you to take a look at their work at GuadalupeWorkers.org. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be back. Another hour ahead of us. A topic this hour, uh, well, actually we've got uh, two topics which touch on the the broad field of bioethics. Wes Smith will be joining us, talking about uh, new gene ed- editing therapy that uh, gets the ethical thumbs up, uh, helps to uh, reverse the problems caused by sickle cell disease. Uh, he's also going to bring up uh, a reproductive uh, startup firm that claims it can sequence an embryo's genome and tell you what problems your unborn child may have, and of course implied in all this, is that you'll be able to take care of those problems by, yes, destroying the preborn child. Uh, thumbs down on that one. So, but we're going to talk about it. It's worth taking a look at. And then we spend time with uh, John Bursch, who's written a wonderful book called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology, uh, John is the um, senior counsel and vice president of appellate advocacy for the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, he's put together a careful book with outstanding tone and um, sensitivity. And this is a topic which uh, is going to be with us for a while, and it's important for us to get this, get the facts, and not be steamrolled by. 
in many cases, is almost a near hysterical reaction uh, from people. So we're going to take a look at that. Uh, questions about gender dysphoria, uh, talk about, uh, again, puberty blockers, talk about uh, adolescents versus adults, and what are, what are we learning in many other countries about this kind of, quote, therapy. So that's coming up. But first, what we want to do is get to today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, December 12th. It's the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. President Biden is calling on Congress to pass his request for Ukraine funding before the holiday recess. He said failing to do so would give Russian President Vladimir Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could ever give him. The president made his remarks in the Oval Office alongside Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who earlier today was on Capitol Hill making a direct plea to lawmakers for more support. The Israel-Hamas war is now in its 67th day. This comes as the United Nations General Assembly is set to vote today on an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The two U.S. officials said there's limited hope in the Biden administration that the U.S. can create another pause in the fighting between the Palestinian militant group and Israeli forces. All charges against former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder in the Flint water case are being tossed out. The Michigan Supreme Court denied a last-ditch attempt from Attorney General Dana Nessel's office to keep the charges in place. The charges against Snyder and eight others fell apart when the state's high court ruled Nessel's use of a one-judge grand jury to bring the charges was improper. Harvard's governing board is giving school president Claudette Gay a vote of confidence. It formally voted to keep her on the job despite sharp criticism over her testimony before a congressional panel investigating anti-Semitism on campus. She and other Ivy League school leaders were grilled about whether calls for genocide of Jews violate school rules. And broadcasting legend Al Michaels is being pulled from NBC's NFL playoff coverage. NBC Sports Vice President Greg Hughes confirmed the news to the New York Post. Michaels was set to call one of NBC's playoff games next month as an alternative. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. There's a new gene editing therapy uh, that... Uh, seeks to modify a patient's blood cells and reverse the problems caused by sickle cell disease. We want to talk about that with Wes Smith. He is the chair and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism and a consultant to the Patients' Rights Council. He's also the host of the Humanized podcast and the author of 13 books, including Culture of Death, The Age of Do-Harm Medicine. You can follow him uh, on uh, Twitter at the Wesley J. Smith, uh, and check out his articles. Uh, you can find them at National Review and First Things and other places as well. Hey, Wes, good to have you back here. Thanks. Hey, Al. Merry Christmas. And to you. Let's talk about this good news first, because uh, yep. there's some bad news I want to ask you about. So, <laughs> this Talk to us about this new gene editing therapy. Um, what's the technology here? Yeah, this is based on CRISPR. Uh, CRISPR is the uh, gene editing technique that can actually alter any cell or any living organism uh, in the world. It, it's quite powerful. I think it's actually more powerful than the uh, 
uh, splitting of the atom. Wow. Um, and and because it, it really has the capacity in both a positive as, as what we're going to discuss and negative to alter the natural world in ways we've never seen before. Um, you may remember when uh, two Chinese babies were born that had been gen- genetically engineered um, with this CRISPR technique. And that was done um, in a way that um, would allow the uh, attributes to pass down the generations. It was done while the uh, children were in the embryonic stages. Uh, a gene was knocked out that would uh, uh, was associated with AIDS, uh, catching AIDS because the father had AIDS, Hmm. although there were other ways to prevent, you know, AIDS in uh, children when a father has AIDS. Uh, But the downside was that uh, it also might have increased their chances of catching the flu. Hmm. But what it really was, was an uh, unprecedented and I think totally unethical uh, approach to trying to change human life that would pass down the generations. This is different. This is what might be called somatic CRISPR. That is, they are not uh, doing germ cell changes or embryonic changes. Mm -hmm. They are uh, providing a treatment in adults that uh, for a disease that is caused by a genetic problem, and what uh, and that does not pass down the generations. So you don't have a eugenics issue here at all. And uh, so what they do is they uh, takes uh, bone marrow. Uh, from the patient who has sickle cell. Now, this is not a cure for sickle cell, but it, what it is is a very important ability to treat one of the most uh, difficult issues that many sickle cell patients have, which is terrible pain caused by hemoglobin or blood problems. So they take the bone marrow and then they genetically alter the bone marrow in the lab to produce better hemoglobin. I'm being very general here. Sure. And eventually they reintroduce that into the patient. And so far in, in tests, which is why the FDA approved it and the uh, British have approved it, it has really alleviated the uh, terrible symptoms that can be caused by the hemoglobin issue with sickle cell. So this is a, a good news because these technologies are all dual-edged technologies. Mm-hmm. You can take the technologies are neutral. You know, you can have the force, right? The light force or the dark side of the force. Right. This is the light side of the force, if you will, or the light side of very powerful biotech. And uh, we should all celebrate that. The problem is the negative type approaches, there's no regulations that really prevent that either. Hmm. Um, so this this is a, a just treatment is new. Is it is it uh, is it being applied now? Is it already in service? Well, it has been applied in uh testing pre-approval okay. testing okay. it has now been approved so it will begin to be uh, applied um, more generally but realize that it's not going to be something in this iteration that will help a great many people because there aren't that many people in the country with sickle cell anemia but it will help those that do have it and it's something to be celebrated yeah yeah no very good very good to hear uh, stories of that sort uh, so often when we get to questions uh, about uh, bioethical questions, uh, there are things that we're uh, properly concerned about. And I came across a new assisted reproductive technology startup uh, I wanted to ask you about. The company sure. called Orchid. Yeah. And it's, say, it's claiming that it has launched the first commercially available 
whole genome sequencing report for embryos. Now, the claim is that uh, they can test and allow parents to find out if their preborn children have uh, any kind of genetic risks. Uh, so they don't have to wait until the child is born. Uh, the implication is uh, that you may want to eliminate the child uh, if they have any serious genetic risk. This is uh, this is actually just more of what's already being done. Okay. In, in IVF, it's called pre-implantation uh, genetic diagnosis. And what they do is they create uh, embryos through IVF. Uh, people know what that is. And they will take one, after it's reached a certain stage, they will take one cell and they will test uh, the genetic makeup of, of the child. Um, what ORCID seems to be saying, as I read these stories about it, is that they actually have a greater ability to do the to discover what's in the genetic makeup of that embryo um, through their method than previously exists. But mm. you already have uh, this kind of sorting. It's, it's uh, when you're, you're making a baby by manufacturing standards, you know, yeah. you're yeah. going to end up with quality control issues, which is what this is. And so it, it's a form of eugenics. And uh, what they do right now before ORCID is if they find, uh, let's say the parents want a boy. Well, they can find out whether the embryo is a boy or a girl and, and not implant uh, girls. Uh, so there is sex selection that goes on. Um, they may find uh, there's a, a gene that uh, might cause a disease, uh, so they won't implant that embryo. And what this apparently does, if they're right, and I have no idea whether their technology is as advertised. There's a lot of puffery in biotech, by the way, yeah. where there are a lot of promises that can't be kept. I don't have any idea whether Orchid is, make, is doing that or not. But um, they're basically saying we can now actually find things such as adult onset cancer and prevent that uh, baby from being born. Well, you know, you end up in a situation where you, you're trying to create such hyper control. Who knows who you're eliminating? For example... What if uh, back during the days of Beethoven's parents, they created a, a child through this method and Beethoven's future deafness was genetic? Yeah. And so yeah. they just eliminated, eliminated Beethoven. Beethoven. So, you know, you don't know who you're eliminating when you do this. No. And the idea that we can somehow create perfection and prevent all uh, distress is really quite alarming. And this becomes a search and destroy mission for those deemed, quote, defective, close quote. Yeah. And I'm afraid it comes along with, uh, excuse my voice, by the way, I've, I've had a, one of those reps, respiratory ailments. Okay. Uh, it comes along with the idea of um, seizing uh, everything into our own hands. And it's part of the great maw of I want, where people decide not only do they want a baby, but they want the baby that they want. Yeah. And it leads to, I think, some very uh, problematic uh, activities. Now, uh, there, there was the case, and there's actually a documentary out on it now, the case of uh, Dr. Huang Husuk, the South Korean scientist, who claimed to clone human embryos. Um, right, and, and he was a fraud. He was yeah. a fraud, and now he's uh, doing beauty show, cloning for beauty show and racing camels at the United Arab Emirates, so. He's right. reinvented Well, himself. the fellow who, uh, getting back to CRISPR, the uh, Chinese fellow, um, went to jail for a few years. And that's not, that's not because 
the China, in my view, that the Chinese government thought what he did was wrong. Don't tell me that that tyranny didn't know what he was about. Yeah. It's because they were embarrassed. But right now he's out of jail and they've given him his own lab to keep going. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I let's talk about eugenics because people may have forgotten that there's a history uh, to the eugenics movement. Take us, take us, if you would, uh, to the early part of the 20th century where there was this passion uh, for eugenics and what are some of the problems that arose? Yeah, they, it, when um, the Darwin uh, theory came out and when they found out about um, genes, you know, through uh, um, the uh, t- uh, experiments uh, by the monk, I forgot his yeah, name. Gregor yeah, Gregor Mendel. Yeah. Yeah, Mendel, thank you. Uh, um, it, Charles Darwin's cousin decided, you know, we can start applying this tech, this knowledge to the human race. And so the idea was to create a more fit close fit quote close quote human race and and they were going to promote the birth of more quote fit children which of course were people that look like them right and uh try to prevent the unfit and in um in england it was called positive eugenics because they were they were holding contests to have people who are eugenically fit get married and have babies and they'd get paid money but the united states took it in a much more uh, uh dark direction one of the great villains uh of american history charles davenport uh started uh what became negative eugenics. That is, we're going to identify the unfit and we're going to sterilize them so they can't reproduce. Right. And so you ended up with the, uh, one of the worst Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court cases in history, Buck v. Bell, mm-hmm. which is as notorious as Dred Scott, in which a woman who uh, was uh, um, the daughter of a prostitute was raped by foster family members and impregnated and the uh, answer to that was to put her into a mental uh, institution because she was unfit. And uh, she had gave birth to a daughter, and they decided, well, see, this just proves eugenics because they also got into, in, in that era, moral unfitness. And uh, she was actually uh, taken to the Supreme Court, and uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote a notorious opinion in 1927 saying that three generations of imbeciles is enough <laughs> and allowed her to be involuntarily sterilized and she had done nothing. Wow. And that led to um, about 60 to 75,000 involuntary sterilizations between, as you said, early in the 20th century and the early 60s. It was a tremendous human rights abuse. It was a crime against humanity. And it came from the idea that uh, of denial of human exceptionalism, that some people are better than other people, right. the fit versus the unfit. And now we're getting back there again, yep. only instead of the crude method of you know, promoting positive eugenics and uh, sterilization for negative eugenics, we now have the potential for genetic testing and activities that can really uh, have sharp teeth. Wes, thank you so much. And uh, how do people stay in touch with you? Uh, contact uh, humanize.today, and that's where most of my articles are posted, and at the Wesley J. Smith All right. on Twitter. Thanks so much. Thank you. Wes Smith. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. 
Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now, and I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a, a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just to, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half of Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, what's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship with him? That might be a hard conversation to have. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399.
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, there's simply no doubt that the issue of gender ideology, uh, transgenderism, uh, is is causing distress. It's causing distress in families, in parishes, in school districts, and uh, and I think people are having a hard time figuring out how to respond in a constructive way. Uh, my guest, John Bursch, has just written an outstanding book called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology, and he's been drawing upon uh, many of the uh, bishop's documents dealing with this question. Uh, John is senior counsel and vice president of appellate advocacy for the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's argued 12 U.S. Supreme Court cases in addition to dozens of state Supreme Court cases and has served as solicitor general for the state of Michigan from 2011 to 2013. And uh, you can uh, find about his work at uh, adflegal.org, adflegal.org. Again, the book is called Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. And John, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Let's go to... uh, Something that you you start out with the question of truth, and there's no doubt that in our uh, generation, people are uh, afraid of this idea of truth with a capital T. People back into my truth, uh, your truth, that's true for me, that's true for you. And you really get to the heart of this problem, because in previous generations, uh, we would ask the question— about what is the nature of a thing, uh, what's its purpose, what's its end. But questions like that don't seem to be being asked anymore. Uh, Through the whole same-sex marriage debate, it was shocking how few times uh, we had strong public debate over what is the purpose of marriage, what is the nature of marriage. Christians were arguing on those lines, but the, the other side was saying, um, well, you can't tell me who to love. <laughs> so we're into a discussion of, again, the purpose of marriage, and they're into showing us people who just want to love one another. It was difficult. But tell me, tell me about this question of truth. How should we approach it? Well, it's a bit of an epidemic in modern society. Yep. Um, it started really, I think, in the 1980s with political correctness, and then um, kind of morphed into a really strong frame um, or strain of moral relativism. And a lot of Catholics don't realize that Pope Benedict was once asked, what is the most dangerous thing uh, facing the world today? And he didn't say nuclear war or lack of faith in the true presence of the Eucharist or or even abortion. Mm -hmm. He said it was moral relativism because he could see the trajectory that we were on. And a lot of people, including Catholics, like moral relativism, as you said, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is what's true for me, because it it avoids conflict. I can say that I'm a pro-life person, and I believe in the the creation of life at its conception, and that it should be protected, but I would never impose that idea on anybody else. And then the important moral issues of our day, things like marriage or things like the nature of the human body, uh, just become questions of what do you prefer, like your favorite ice cream or your favorite type of cookie. Um, And so in order to have a a real conversation about gender ideology, we need to start with the notion that there are such things as objective truth, 
And having argued the same-sex marriage case of Burgerfell in the U.S. Supreme Court, I was acutely aware of how much uh, a lack of understanding about nature or purpose of marriage yeah. undermined that whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you you spend time in your second chapter uh, looking at the human body uh, and showing it how it helps us to understand God's nature, and that itself to many people in our generation, they would find it interesting, but a little bit odd that you think you can discern from looking at the human body something about God's design uh, for human sexuality. Uh, This is what we call the theology of the body. Inform us. Tell us where this comes from. Yeah, we, we could probably do an entire show just on Theology of the Body. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it was a, <laughs> a, a beautiful series of presentations that uh, Pope St. John Paul II made at his weekly audiences, and it really ties a whole bunch of different things together, a lot of his different thinking, uh, to show that uh, Theology of the Body, that is the study of God in the body, that by looking at the body and its purpose, its nature, it reveals something about God himself. Um, and, and just you know, very quickly and at a high level— um, he explains that when a man and a woman come together in a sacramental marriage and they give each other, uh, give each of themselves to the other in a most complete way, even the gift of their fertility, um, it, it's a love that's so powerful it creates a third human being that needs its own name, a son or a daughter. And that, that vision of the family is an icon of the Trinity itself, where God the Father has eternal and boundless love for God the, the Son, Jesus Christ, and vice versa, and from that love proceeds God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that's how the human body helps reflect as an icon the Trinity itself and helps us better understand God's nature. And if you think about Jesus's life you know, on, on earth, it was all about body. Uh, the incarnation, the whole purpose was so that he could become human and share a body like all the rest of us. That's right. And after he was crucified and, and resurrected, it was very important that he showed the apostles that even his glorified body was still his body, that they could touch his hands and his side, that he could eat food, um, and things like that. Um, and, and so the, the problem with modern culture is that too many people see our soul as being trapped in this apparatus that we call the body. And instead, the Catholic Church teaches, consistent with the incarnation and theology of the body, that we are embodied souls. And in that way, the, the sexed nature of our body expresses something about who we are, and that's not something that we can reject or ignore or change, because it's inherently part of our person. Yeah. And, and again, uh, we expect for eternity to be male or female. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Every week in the Nicene Creed at Mass, uh, we, we talk about someday that our bodies will be resurrected and rejoined with our souls in heaven, and they will continue to be male or female bodies. They'll be glorified bodies, to be sure, just like Jesus. Um, but we're, we're going to be male or female for eternity. I, I find that when people uh, catch this, when it finally they have this epiphany, uh, they're actually blown away. It's, it is beautiful. It's informative, uh, it's rich, it's profound. Um, and the Church writes beautifully on this, uh, and thankfully a number of our bishops have been writing on this. Uh, the comeback always seems to be, well, yeah, that's beautiful, you're right. But science says, and they, science has a privileged place uh, 
uh, in our culture. It is the, you know, the prime way that people establish truth claims. So what does scientific inquiry say about gender ideology? I'm so glad you raised that because there are two whole chapters in the book on science with extensive annotations uh, so that you don't have to be a scientist, but you can read the book and get a sense for where the science is headed on this. And as we, we always discover, science is completely in alignment with the Church's teachings. Uh, there is no scientific study that says there is such a thing as a boy born in a girl's body or vice versa, that, that there is no such thing. And that when you've got adolescents or teenagers who are experiencing gender dysphoria, which is that intense distress caused by the feeling that they are, they are in the wrong body, that 80 to 95 percent of them, if just left to their own devices, uh, would naturally align their mind with their body and there would be no future issue. Uh, conversely, if we start to transition those kids, if we affirm them by allowing them to dress as the opposite sex, to use the opposite sex's facilities, to use preferred pronouns, change their name, and all those sorts of things, nearly 100% of them will go on to puberty blockers, cross-sex uh, hormones, and eventually even surgery. And the best medical evidence in the world on this, and, and we can dive deeper into that if, if you'd like, sure. um, shows that there, there is no benefit from doing that at best. And at worst, it increases suicide rates and increases mental health problems and increases a variety of other things, including um, loss of bone density, uh, heart problems, brain issues, developmental issues. And then, of, of course, obviously, loss of fertility and loss of sexual function. Yeah. Yeah. The, the pri- it seems like a terrible price to pay. How, how do and I think people are puzzled, though. I understand when I think of homosexuality, I to me that's I get that I get that I know how I feel towards women, and I can understand that a man might feel those same kind of passions towards another man. Okay, that's I get that, but I don't understand what it would mean to think of myself as female. I don't know what would that mean. Does it does that have to do with hair design? Have to do with fashion? Does it have to do with uh, color? Uh, not liking football? No, serious. I'm serious. What is it in a person that makes them say to themselves, "I'm in the wrong body"? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. Um, First, it is a real diagnosable mental health issue. Yep. And so people who are going through this can be suffering tremendously. And that's one of the, the main points of the book is that, well, teaching truthfully what the church teaches, because we know that's what's good for human flourishing, we need to accompany people who are experiencing this dysphoria because they, they need our Catholic companionship. Amen. Uh, but, but you might think about it like other dysphoria. So, for example, anorexia is a very common one, and many people know someone, you know, at least in their family, maybe even a friend who's experienced anorexia, and that person is, is probably already too thin, but yet in their mind they feel that they're fat. Hmm. So there's a disconnect between how they feel and what reality is. And it's the same thing with gender dysphoria, except that with anorexia or you know, body dysmorphia, that's where someone feels that uh, a limb on their body doesn't belong there and they desperately want to remove it to relieve their stress. Um, with those types of things, we would never encourage the, the anorexic to eat less or to have surgery to lose more weight. We would never encourage the, the gender dysmorphic, I'm sorry, the body dysmorphic person to remove that part of their body. Right. Instead, we would give them mental health therapy so that they could align their mind with their body. And it's curious and anti-science 
that gender dysphoria is the only dysphoria where doctors and hospitals are telling people that they should change their body instead of change their mind. Yeah. And one of the big root problems of that, what's not loving about that approach, besides all the bad things that happen when you transition, is that frequently those individuals with that dysphoria have experienced other traumas in their life. It might be sexual abuse, it might be something else. And if you don't deal with those, you're not going to get to the root of the problem. And that's not loving at all. Gotcha. John, hold it there. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and continue. My guest is uh, John Bursch, Loving God's Children. The Church and Gender Ideology, highly recommended. We'll have it available for you, of course, in the online bookstore. I'm Al Creston. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Kiro's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, what does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secular media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country. And they're saying, we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a news flash, but the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary and we are elitists, we know better, and this is what we're going to do, is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as the Register and EW10 News Nightly and the World Over and Catholic News Agency and EW10 News In Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. What responsibility does social media bear in promoting the truth? 
The Catholic Catechism notes that in our modern society, the communications media plays a major role in societal information, cultural promotion, and formation. Since society has a right to information that is based on truth, justice, freedom, and solidarity, every segment of the communications culture bears a heavy responsibility for the common good. Media content within the bounds of justice and charity must be true and complete and communicated honestly and properly. The Catechism cautions us to be vigilant rather than passive consumers of information in order to resist unwholesome influences. Journalists are urged to respect the facts while still observing charity by not stooping to defamation of individuals. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, John Burrish, is the author of Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. Bring us up to date. Where are the professional associations on this? The American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association. Have have they bought into this idea of gender-affirming care? Is that universal? Uh, in the United States, those associations, as well as the American Medical Association, have pretty much universally bought into it, uh, to the point where when members on the floor of their annual meetings try to raise objections and simply ask that more study be done, um, they're, they're just shut down and not even allowed to talk. Yeah. And it's curious that the American medical community would approach it this way, because if you look at uh, foreign countries, in particular the U.K., Finland, Sweden, um, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries, mm-hmm. um, they've got a lot more experience with this. They have national health care systems where every person is tracked throughout their life, and so it's much easier for them to do long-term studies. And they started gender transitioning much, much earlier. And so they've got the best data on this. And every single one of those countries has shut down their gender clinics and walked away from transitioning youth, you know, especially wow. adolescents and, and teenagers, yeah. because they've realized the harm that it does when they encourage this. And, you know, again, it's the, the initial affirmations, the pronouns, the, the cross-dressing, the use of the other sex's privacy facilities, the sports teams, that sends kids down this one-way shoot to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and eventually surgery. And the best long-term studies that we have show that the, the suicide rates, which are admittedly already very high, again, that's why gender dysphoric young people need our accompaniment. They need mental health care. They, they definitely need us. Yeah. Um, it, it goes from about 11 times suicide rate of the general population to 17 times the rate for an adult who's fully transitioned, oh. going all the way through surgery. So often we'll, we'll hear the lie in culture, but would you rather have a, a live son or a dead daughter or vice versa? Yeah. And, and that is a lie because, in fact, it makes it worse when you go through those, those problems or go through that transition. And so that's why it's so important that we don't affirm and that we present to people the truth about what happens when you start trying to change the human body. I'm just curious. Do you know how these, again, uh, the American professional associations, are they simply ignoring these other the research in these other countries who have been ahead uh, of us are, in this? <laughs> they are ignoring the research. And Gee. I think that there's both, both political and monetary motives. Um, there, there's obviously one political party that has picked up this mantra and is pushing it at, 
um, you know, every expense into every corner of the, of the culture if it's possible. Um, but in addition, this is very lucrative for those who support gender transitions. So one of Planned Parenthood's largest revenue streams now, uh, in addition to abortion, is from prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex mm. hormones. And these surgeries cost up to $70,000. And in many states um, and at the federal level, they are changing insurance plans or requiring private employers with insurance plans to cover gender transition surgeries. And so th- there's a huge money-making racket going on here. And we're just starting to see some pushback in the form of individuals who are filing medical malpractice lawsuits against gender clinics and doctors who undergo these uh, procedures um, who are failing to disclose to their patients the risks of going through this and the other alternatives, such as psychotherapy, that they might have. And I'm hopeful that in the long term, medical malpractice actions will help put a, a stop to it. The problem with that is that in many states, the limitations periods to bring a lawsuit for medical malpractice is very short. Mm. And it, it can take several years for someone to figure out that they've made a mistake once they've gone through a surgery or a transition. Uh, and so oftentimes they're just left out of any possibility of going back after that doctor. Uh, you have the little short case studies here of people like Walt Heyer, uh, uh, Benji, uh, Chloe. Uh, can you give me give us, for people who are unfamiliar with these stories, can you give us one? Yeah, th- these are detransitioner stories, and just so everybody's familiar with that term if they haven't heard it, a detransitioner is someone who initially tried to transition to a different sex realize that they made a mistake, and now they have detransitioned back to their natal sex. And, and Walt Heyer is a great example of that. Um, he's one where um, he had experienced sexual abuse as a young boy. Um, in addition to that, he had a grandmother who liked to dress him up in girls' clothes because she always wanted a granddaughter instead of a grandson. And as a result of those experiences and then starting to get involved in the, the same-sex community, um, went through you know, all kinds of traumas and, and terrible things that happened to him and eventually concluded that he was actually a woman born in a man's body. So as an adult, he made a transition. And at first, he was very happy with that. He thought it relieved the distress that he was experiencing. But as more time went on, he realized that that hadn't solved the problem at all. In fact, it had made things worse. And so he detransitioned and his body is ruined forever. You know, when you go through those surgeries. You can't ever put someone's pieces back together the right. way that they were, absent intervention. And, and so he's got permanent physical and emotional scarring from all that. But he's so convinced that he was misled by the gender transition community that he is now an activist who tries to reach young people who are considering going through a transition and letting them know that there's a whole network of people out there who can talk to them about these experiences and that there's a better way and that's to go through the mental health counseling that you need and solve the underlying problems so he's really become a a hero for many people yeah yeah i interviewed him a few years ago and it is an incredible story how is there, people talk about social contagion, that there's been uh, just an outburst of uh, gender dysphoric claims, uh, especially among adolescents. Um, is is there such a thing as social contagion here? Uh, there absolutely is. And there's another really great book by Abigail Schreier, uh, who, who writes about this issue. Historically, before kind of you know the, the modern push for gender ideology, the number of people who experienced gender dysphoria was extremely small. 
you know, we're talking about a, a point with several zeros before you get to a 1%. <laughs> okay. uh, but, but now, in, in some states, um, double-digit percentages of young people are identifying as transgender. Um, in fact, I, I think in Minnesota, I, I may have the state wrong, 25% of young people identify as LGBT, which is just an astronomical number. Um, and, and what you see in some of these classrooms, especially with young, impressionable girls, is that six or eight or ten of them will all declare that they're transgender at the same time. And that, that social contagion comes from something that none of us will be surprised by, that adolescents and teenagers are uncomfortable in their bodies. Every yeah. single one of us went through puberty <laughs> and had those experiences yeah. where, where we didn't feel comfortable because of the changes that were happening. And, we, and wish we could have made some changes ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> You know, and, and so on social media, especially through platforms like TikTok and Instagram um, and others, these kids are being fed the lie that the cure to all their problems is to transition. And, you know, again, at first that feels wonderful because all of a sudden now they've got new friends and they've got people online who support them for being their real selves and, you know, all these kinds of, of things. Uh, but then over time, all that turns out to just be a lie. Um, but but it's a, a very serious problem because there it's not even a mental health issue like the dysphoria is. You know, again, that's a diagnosable um, mental health problem. You go to a psychologist and, you know, they'll, they'll work with you on mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. These contagions are really just social choices. And young people have no idea how damaging this is going to be to them until it's too late. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden you have women who detransition and they realize, that they may not be able to have children. Yeah. Or if they are able to have a baby, they'll never be able to nurse that baby because they had their breast removed when they were 15 years old. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the social contagion is an extremely concerning portion of this movement. Well, you have a chapter on how do we respond. Uh, the book's called Loving God's Children. How do we do that? Well, the number one thing is to love, and, and not in the, the sense of society's definition of love, which just means um, you know, emotional feelings or making someone feel good, but true love, as the church defines, uh, defines it, which is to always will the best for the other person. And we can never be loving if we don't act in truth, as we were talking about at, at the beginning. If there's a, a child who wants to touch a hot stove, uh, the parent would never let them do that, no matter how much the child wants to, because they understand the truth that the child will be burnt, and they want what's best for their child, so they'll deny them something they want. Uh, so in these situations, when we encounter someone who is suffering from dysphoria or we, we know of a family member who knows someone, uh, what we need to do is present to them the truth, the objective reality, and not only our Catholic teaching, but also the science so they understand all of it, and then try to intervene to, to prevent that. And that requires a lot of time, a lot of accompaniment. It requires deep and close relationships. It's a lot of work, as loving always is. But if we don't do that, um, the, the thing that haunts me, it should haunt anybody who hasn't read the book yet, is that one day someone will come back having made the transition and then realized it was a mistake and say, you knew about this. Why didn't you tell me? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that I was making a mistake, that I was going to ruin the rest of my life and ruin my body by, by making this decision? Um, so I, I really hope that people will take this subject seriously. They will learn about it, even if there's no imminent problem in their family. And so that they'll be ready, that when they hear about a problem, they'll be able to present the truth in a loving, compassionate way and help someone on a completely different course. One of the first places this comes up is about pronouns. Um, uh, a cousin, uh, a friend begins asking uh, for you to use, quote, gender-affirming pronouns. Um, how do you handle that request? 
Well, two thoughts on that. Um, the first one is a, a legal thought, which is if you're an employee and your employer is telling you that you have to use preferred pronouns, that you do have legal rights. If it's a public employer, like a public school or a government agency, the First Amendment directly prohibits them from compelling you to speak the government's message. Uh, and we've litigated in one cases like that, including in the Federal Court of Appeals. If you're at a private employer, you have religious rights under Title VII, which is the federal employment law that applies to every employer that has more than 50 employees. And that very well may entitle you to an exemption if they're trying to compel you to say something that you disagree with. But just generally speaking, say you have a family member or a friend, it would be really easy to give into that. You know, what those on the other side will say is that if someone chooses to identify themselves a particular way, the only respectful thing that you can do is honor the way that they identify themselves. Uh, but as we've discussed, if you believe, and the, the science and the truth show, that a transition is terribly harmful for a person, then doing anything that pushes them down that path is also morally wrong. It's sinful. It violates God's will because it's violating his design. Uh, and so we, we cannot give in to the preferred pronouns, no matter how easy or loving that may seem to be, because it's really not. And, and so we have to draw the line at pronouns. As I mentioned, those kids where you start affirming them with the pronouns and the dress and the locker rooms mm -hmm. and the bathrooms and the sports teams, nearly 100% of them will then go on to take puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Okay. Uh, so the, the pronoun usage is way more dangerous than it would appear. Okay. And um, so what does a parent do if a child uh, just brings it up point blank and says, I feel as though I'm a boy in a girl's body, or is this very straightforward? How do you, where do you go from there? Well, anytime that a, a child or even a, a friend or a family member comes to us with a, a tough statement like that, the very first thing to do is to put on your listening ears and to ask a lot of questions yeah. and figure out where it's coming from, you know, and say, well, you know, why do you feel that way? You know, what, what do you think it feels like to be a girl? And just through talking it out, it's often the case that you'll be able to demonstrate to them that that feeling that they have isn't a reality and that they need to, to walk away from that. So, for you know, example, this whole notion that I feel like a girl, well, if you've been a boy your whole life, how do you know what it means to feel like exactly. a girl? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so what we do is, is we, through our, our culture, we tell kids stereotypes. Uh, you know, that girls like to wear dresses and play with dolls. Well, that's not really feeling like a girl. Right. So we need to explore those things in conversation. John, thank you. Thank you for the book. Uh, it's a great, uh, great aid. And I love the tone of it. And I appreciate you being with me today. Thank you, Alan. And thank you to Sophia Institute Press for publishing it. John J. Burrish, the book is called Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. 
If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got a vent. Is this so? It's old theory. Somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest on the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me and reminding you on Thursday, on Thursday, we're opening the phone lines. It'll be our annual uh, Good Books for Christmas. Uh, We like to, again, question ourselves and uh, give you the opportunity to make some recommendations uh, so people can uh, buy books and give books. And uh, people are always wondering. It's like with movies. You always want to know. What's a movie like? What's worth spending my time on? Same thing with books. Um, and if you're a reader, you may be, <laughs> may be in the minority these days. But again, that's Thursday. Going to open the phone lines. So come with two or three book suggestions uh, for Christmas gift giving, okay? Uh, that'll be on Thursday. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me today. Do follow up on any of our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net, to the Cresta Guest Archives, and the books are in the online bookstore. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net. 